Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8? We're going to look at 15 verses, a uh, number of verses, so you'll need a Bible to follow along. These brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those that's marked for you. At Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, that Bible's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word, so please keep that and bring it back with you each week so that you can follow along as we look at Scripture together. Ecclesiastes 8. This past week, the Trump administration announced a policy that gives employers an exemption from providing insurance coverage for forms of birth control that violate their religious beliefs. In particular, many religious organizations and Christian-owned businesses had objected to a mandate in the Obamacare law that required employers to include birth control in their insurance plans, even forms of birth control that induce abortions. This issue had created a dilemma for Christians who are, of course, against abortion because God is. But at the same time, they're being forced by the government to cover it. Now, that's just the latest example of a problem that Christians have faced for centuries, namely this. When a believer is required to engage in civil disobedience from time to time. And the question, when is that required of a Christian? To engage in civil disobedience by refusing to do what the law requires. And that's not an easy answer. Because the Bible gives great latitude to the government to make and enforce laws, even laws we don't approve of and don't like. Romans chapter 13 says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It goes on, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, at the time that that was written in Romans chapter 13, there was a certifiable madman, Nero, on the throne of Rome. And yet Paul, who wrote it, says the authorities are instituted by God. And are placed there for our good. So how does one know when to obey and when, if ever, it's okay to defy the government? Well, as we continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see today that the only person that can do this is the person who has biblical wisdom and therefore can navigate properly such questions. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we're gathered before you now, and we've come to praise you with our lips. We've done so to give back to you as you first given to us, to fellowship together. But Lord, now we are opening your word, and we're asking you to speak to us in it. Grant us open hearts, attentive minds, so that we'll grasp what you say in your, in your word, which is truth. 
And that we will be ready and desirous to make application of it in our lives so that we leave today intent and better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every week, most of you know, we have inserted in your program an outline for the message. And if you don't have that out as yet, please take that out. And you'll see that I have four major things that Ecclesiastes chapter 8 teaches us. The first one is this, the wise know joy. The wise know joy. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 8 asks, who is like the wise? Now, we might be tempted to answer that question, who is like the wise, with no one. Especially in light of what we saw last week in chapter 7 and verse 23. It says, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. So we might conclude that no one is like the wise, but the end of verse 1 says that wisdom transforms those who have it. So there must be at least some who indeed are wise. So it's not saying that no one is wise, but rather that wisdom is rare and that no one can compare with someone who is truly wise. Those relatively rare people know how to explain things, how to look at things and interpret things, circumstances and situations, biblically. Verse 1 asks that question, who is like the wise? But then it asks another question, who knows the explanation of things? It's this wise but rare person who can do that. And they can do that because wisdom is not the same as knowledge in the sense of just possessing information. And it's not necessarily a high intelligence quotient. Rather, it's the ability to apply what we do know. The wise person is able to take God's truth and make application of it to the circumstances of life. It is applied knowledge. The wise person knows how to take God's truth and apply it to all that's happening in their lives and around them. And they're able to do this Because the wise, the Bible tells us elsewhere, are those who fear the Lord. That is, they have reverence for the Lord. Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, the wise view all things in relationship to their first allegiance, which is to the Lord. So as they examine what's happening around them and what's happening in their own lives... They look at all of that through the lens of someone in relationship to the Lord and in a God-centered way. And as a result of that, they're able to evaluate it properly. And for the people who do this, it has a transformative effect on them. The end of verse 1 says this, A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. That is, a wise person can have joy and show it. A wise person can have joy and show it even in the midst of difficult situations. And the reason they can is because they see beyond the way things appear to the way they really are from God's perspective. Remember, Solomon is writing as as looking at life from under the sun. 
But the wise person is able to look at it from God's perspective. Under the sun, things appear to be one way. But from above the sun, from God's perspective, we have the reality. And so these wise ones have and express a serene confidence no matter what is going on. A 2008 article written by a prominent atheist was about a strange phenomenon that this atheist had observed when visiting Africa. The journalist Matthew Paris wrote a piece for the British paper The Times entitled Why Africa Needs God. Now you heard that right. This guy's an atheist. And he writes a paper titled Why Africa Needs God. Although he made it clear that he does not believe in God at all, he admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in the lives of people that he knew in his boyhood home of Malawi and in other countries across Africa. Not only did he admire the good work that Christians were doing to care for the poor and the sick, but he also liked the way they looked. The Christians were different, he wrote. Their faith appeared to have a a liberating effect and it relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. He says, whenever we entered a territory that had been worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people that we passed and spoke to. There was something in their eyes. That's what Solomon is saying in verse 1 of chapter 8. That people who have the confidence of a relationship with God and God's truth, can navigate life in a radically different way than those who do not. So as applied to the matter that I mentioned earlier, should a Christian ever disobey the law? A wise way to look at that based upon what Scripture teaches is that if the government requires us to do something the Bible forbids, requiring a Christian doctor to perform an abortion, if they're going to see Medicaid patients, for example. Or if the government forbids us to do something the Bible requires, like preach the whole counsel of God or give the gospel, then in those instances, we must disobey the government. In fact, in your New Testament, we have an instance of that very thing. The apostles were told by the religious officials in Jerusalem that they're not to speak in Jesus' name. They are not to proclaim the good news of Christ. They were hauled before the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, and this is what the apostles said in response. We must obey God rather than human beings. You're telling us to refrain from something that God requires us to do, therefore we are going to have to go with God. But it doesn't leave the narrative there. It tells us that they did this, they defied the ruling authorities for that reason. But then it goes on, and then we're going to see verse 41 in just a minute, that these people left with joy. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Think about that. People who have the absolute confidence that they're doing the right thing. And because they're absolutely confident that they're applying God's truth correctly to the circumstances of life, they have a confidence and a joy that shows. The wise know joy. But I say secondly in your outline, 
The wise know their place. They know joy, but they know their place. Verse 2 says, obey the king's command. That means, I say in your outline, that they, the wise, submit promptly. Obey the king's command. They submit promptly. Now, the Bible gives us several levels of authority. Those that God has authorized, and that's where this word authority comes from. It's for one who has been authorized to exercise power over those who are under them. So there's government of whatever type is an authority, has been authorized by God to exercise power over those who are its subjects of whatever type, whether a monarchy, as was the case in the time of Ecclesiastes with a king, whether a democracy, which we are blessed to live in, or even communism. Does that surprise you? Or even communism. But in addition to government, there is God-given authority in other places as well, in the workplace, the church, the home, the school, and so on. But we have, myself included, we have difficulty in these because our first parents, Adam and Eve, had a problem obeying a perfect authority in God. So it should be no surprise that we have a hard time now with a sin nature obeying the imperfect, sinful authorities in our lives. But the wise person knows that government, even a bad government, is better than no government. And is a gift from God, and so he obeys the laws. Obeys the laws like paying his full share of taxes. Like putting in trees and bushes on our property here as a requirement of the city, even though the property already had more of both than we wanted. And you do this because verse 2 says, you took an oath before God. Now, the context Solomon is thinking of is probably someone employed in the royal court of the king who took an oath of obedience. But it applies to us as well because in our system, we the people ratified a document, the Constitution, which we said would be the governing law of our land. And that governing document authorizes Congress and the president and the courts, by the way, in its articles in that order, Congress, president, courts, Authorize them to establish and execute and interpret laws on behalf of the country. And we don't have to like those laws. But we do have to obey them. Except in the thankfully rare circumstances like I mentioned earlier. Verse 3 says, do not be in a hurry then to leave the king's presence. Do not stand for a bad cause. For he will do whatever he pleases. It's our tendency, though, to be disloyal, to leave and rebel quickly. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived here, is telling us that the wise don't do that. And understand at the end of verse 4 that the one who is in power is going to be able to do what he pleases in any case. So don't be like that great theologian, John Mellencamp, who says, I fight authority 
And authority always wins. But I've been doing it since I was a kid, he says. And he keeps doing it. Even though we know authority always wins. So this is saying, be quick to obey and be very slow and deliberate about rebelling against God-ordained authority. Even if you don't like what the government or your teachers or your parents or your pastors are doing. Now again, it goes without saying that if you're being required to sin, then you must disobey. But hear this. Authority and submission assume disagreement. Think about that. There would be no reason for the Bible to command to us to submit if we always agreed with those who were over us. Authority and submission assume that there will be times of disagreement. And we are called to place ourselves under, that's what the word submit means, to place yourself under the authority and then obey it even if we don't agree with it. In fact, especially when we don't agree with it. Now that's not to say that authority is never to be questioned or to be challenged, but rather that it's to be done when it's done thoughtfully, sparingly. And I say in your outline that we obey promptly, we submit promptly, and we submit respectfully. Respectfully. Wise people submit promptly. They're ready to do so. But when they appeal, they do it respectfully. Verse 4. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. When you do make an appeal to authority... The wise do not do it with a haughty or insubordinate attitude. Like in verse 4. What are you doing? Do you have any idea what you're doing? Instead, they come with respect and with the intention to obey once they've been heard in their appeal. Friends, we always have the option of respectful appeal to those who are in authority. But note that qualifier, respectful appeal. One preacher illustrated it this way. If I have a child who chafes under the house rules and says, Dad, this isn't fair and I'm not going to do it. There will be no hearing. There'll be no court of appeal. Dad will be judge and possibly executioner. But if that same child comes and says, Dad, this isn't fair, isn't fair. I'll do it, but I don't like it. Can we talk about this? Then there will be occasion to sit down for a hearing and have a discussion about the matter. The wise always have the option of respectful appeal. And we see this respectful appeal to authority in Scripture, even when it's a bad authority. You may remember the great Apostle Paul. Because of his ministry of proclaiming Christ, was often arrested, beaten. He was brought on one occasion before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Notice how Paul approaches this king before whom he is for having done nothing wrong other than preaching the gospel. This is what Paul says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. 
I beg you to listen to me patiently. Do you see that attitude? Do you see that respectful appeal? That's Paul. Paul's the one who wrote Romans 13 that we read earlier. The Apostle Peter wrote something similar to Romans 13 in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he said this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So Peter is saying something very similar to what Paul had said in Romans 13. Again, Nero on the throne when he when he writes this. But then Peter goes on toward the end of 1 Peter chapter 2 to say, and now look at the example of the Lord Jesus. Look what he did when he was hauled before authorities. Now this is God in the flesh being hauled before unjust authorities, having not only not done anything wrong, never sinned, he's absolutely perfect, And yet this is what the Bible says. Peter draws this conclusion based upon the example of Jesus. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself did that. And the Bible says that is an example for us to follow. Verse 6 says that there's a proper time then and procedure for going about this respectful appeal. One has listed some of the right and wrong ways to go about an appeal to authority. What is the right time or what are bad times to deal with issues when you're under an authority, you don't like what's happening, you want to make a respectful appeal, how do you how do you go about that? Well, it's a bad time when your attention ought to be focused elsewhere. When there's a crisis at work, do not, don't bring up a labor dispute. Your attention should be on the crisis. There will be difficult issues over the years, undoubtedly, that we'll have to deal with in church. I would just recommend to you that you don't grab one of the leadership team, whether me or one of the other pastors or one of the the deacons. Don't, Don't grab us in a hallway on Sunday when our attention needs to be elsewhere. So a bad time to do it is when your attention or their attention has to be someplace else. It's also a bad time when there's no opportunity for discussion to follow up. Your spouse is on the way out the door to work. And in the five seconds before he leaves, you bring up a topic that's destined to start World War III. Don't do that. It's a bad time to do this when someone is hurting. A proper appeal is made also not just at the right time, but in the right way. There is a procedure. We should not deal with difficult issues in anger. The Bible talks about the display of righteous anger... And often we have to display it with those that we are charged to lead. But we must be careful because we can slide from righteous anger to unrighteous anger very quickly. And we should not deal with difficult issues by questioning character. By going to the government official saying, King, what are you doing? If you had the sense that God gave a mule, you'd see things the way I do. 
That kind of argument is an attack on the person, an ad hominem attack. It bypasses the issue and it inflames those who are in authority. And it's also often an attack on motive, an innuendo as to why someone doesn't see things the way I see them. If you really were pure of heart, if there really were some sin grasping your heart, you would see this differently. That's the wrong procedure. Don't question character. A proper appeal, a respectful appeal is made at the right time and in the right way. And the end of verse 6 says, that's all done, quote, though a person may be weighed down by misery. That is, you don't rush in and make your appeal without the right time and the right procedure, even if the situation you're appealing is weighing upon you, even if you're in difficult circumstances, even if it's costing you. And it's making life difficult for you. In other words, a proper appeal places the interests of the one in authority above our own interests. Now, most of us think that our own interests are the only interests. We tend to see only narrow issues defined by what's important to us. Often we have a problem with those in authority over us. Because we're looking at one narrow aspect of the job or of the situation. But just please remember this, friends, that those who are in leadership must of necessity see a wider picture. Always keep in mind that the one in authority understands the big picture and that weighs heavily upon you may not be the best thing at all. What's weighing on you what's a big deal to you at the time, may not be best for everybody else. And they have to see all of that. Sometimes, and many of you have experienced this, uh, after church, you'll come up to me and you'll say, hey, did you get my email? And I'll go, "Uh, what email was that? Now, in all likelihood, I've read your email. And if I haven't replied yet, I don't have the answer or I haven't had time to do that. But I just don't remember your email. And here's the reason I don't remember your email. Because that's one of about 50 emails that I got from people in the church that week. Now, the reason we tend to do that, and I do the same thing. Did you read my email? Did you get my... Is because we're only looking at it from our perspective. That email I sent is the only email in the world. But, of course, as we step back and we think about it, we know that's not true. And the same thing is true with the issues that we have. Whether it's your employer at work, whether it's the government, whatever it is, we see a narrow slice of it and how it affects us, but not always the bigger picture. The wise submit, and they do it promptly, respectfully, and they do it patiently. Verse 7, since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? This is saying your appeal has been made. And once your appeal has been made, you'll be satisfied that you've been heard even if you've not been heeded. Do you hear that? There's a difference between being heard and being heeded. But you'll be satisfied that you have been heard. And then you'll leave it in the hands of God who can change the heart of the one in authority if he so chooses. And a God who will, in any case, work it out as he sees fit without you taking matters into your own hands. 
But you say to yourself, well, that means they're going to get away with it. They're not going to be called to account, right? They're messing things up. Somebody's got to make sure that they know what idiots they are. No, they're not going to get away with it. It just means that God is the one who will call them to account, not you. Verse 8 says, As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. So forgive the grammar, but ain't nobody getting away with nothing. That's what it's saying. So the wise know joy. They know their place. Thirdly, they know what's right. They know what's right. Verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. It's saying that the wise see the problem of wicked and often unjust leadership. And they're all the more vexed by it because they know it hurts so many people. In verse 9, it says, one lords it over those to his own hurt. Yes, to the one who's doing the lording. But it also hurts those over whom they're lording. Verse 10 is saying that those who lord it over the, the others to their harm are often people of wide influence and prominence. It says they come and go from the holy place and they receive praise in the city. And the wise also see that according to verse 11, when they're allowed to get away with it, it encourages others to do wrong. So evil apparently pays. The psalmist saw that and lamented that same thing when he said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely then, here's the conclusion. If, if evil pays, and you see that, then the psalmist says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. They're getting away with it. It encourages other people then to do it. But most important, the wise person understands this, that right will prevail in God's timing. Verse 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. It's the same lesson learned by that same psalmist that I read just a moment ago, who had despaired that the wicked appear to be getting away with it. But then he remembered that the God of justice will not allow injustice to stand forever. And so in that same psalm, he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. So the wise know what's right. And they know that that right is ultimately going to prevail. And so I say lastly in your outline. The wise know joy. They know their place. They know what's right. And they know who wins. Verse 14. 
There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve. This, too, I say, is meaningless. So what about all of that? Under the sun, that's the way it is. How should I look at that? And how should I wisely live in light of that? Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. So we go about our wise living. We go about the transformation then that occurs to those that are wise. We have a contentment, a security, and a joy that others cannot know. And meanwhile, under the sun, while we wait for the books to be balanced and the wrongs to be made right, God's truth and his character to be vindicated. We Christians who have a relationship with God, who can apply his truth to our circumstances, we can live with that sense of contentment and even joy because we know the ultimate verdict of history is this, friends. God wins. And those of us who are on his side will win with him. So your take-home truth is this. Christians know how to respond to life's problems. It's Christians who know that because it's Christians who have this relationship with God that grants them the security that come what may, they are in his hands and they can trust him no matter what. Let's pray then and thank God for that assurance. Our Father, we do thank you for meeting with us and allowing us to meet together in your presence. We thank you for giving us your word that explains to us precepts and principles that are applicable not only in Solomon's day, 3,000 years ago, but are applicable, just as applicable in our day. Lord, we thank you for teaching us that you are the supreme authority, that you are on your throne, that all of the authorities that exist only exist by your permission. All of the circumstances in our life lives can only happen because you allow them and you have your ultimate good purpose in them. Thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, for convicting us when we deny those truths in our hearts. Thank you for abiding with us to comfort us in the midst of all the difficulties that our God calls us to face. Lord, help us to be people who show our faith then. Show our faith in the joy and the contentment and the security that we have in the various circumstances to which you have called us. Help us, Lord, to see that whatever's happening in our lives, there's no one who's controlling our lives except you. May we place our trust in you and may that trust be seen in the way we speak and the way we act. For your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.